In your Bible today, the book of Galatians, chapter number five. Galatians chapter five. Well, this series is called Meet the Holy Spirit. This, I think, is the maybe fifth or sixth week that I've preached on the Holy Spirit. It's been a long time since I did a thorough study of it, and I'm so impressed that I really need to preach a lot on it. If you don't, you become naturalistic. You become man-centered. And the teaching of the Holy Spirit, teaching people to be aware of the Holy Spirit, teaching people to be conscious of His ministry and His work, uh, changes things from what I do to what He is doing through me. So important. Now, I began by teaching you that the Holy Spirit is God. He is the third person of the Trinity, the divine one. And that he is a personal being, not a force, though he is a force, but more than a force, more than just power, more than just an occurrence in nature. He is a personal spirit being. He is a spirit, obviously, the Holy Spirit. But he is a living being, a part of the Godhead. And I talk, I've talked to you about how he empowers us. In fact, Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing, meaning through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the very life of God living in and indwelling a Christian. And the moment that I receive Christ as my Savior, the Holy Spirit moves in to live in my body. The Bible says that my body is the temple or the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit works in the lives of unsaved people. And primarily, His work with unsaved people is to convict them of their sin and to show them their desperate need for Jesus Christ to be their Savior, to be a part of their life. And then last week, I talked to you about the filling of the Holy Spirit. We're commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not an optional thing for a Christian. It is a command of our Lord. It's obligatory. It's absolutely essential if I'm going to live for Him because I cannot live for Him in the power of my own strength. I can't live for the Lord Jesus Christ effectively just out of duty or at willpower or self-discipline. The Holy Spirit is the power that empowers and enables me as a sinful being who has been saved and redeemed. The Holy Spirit gives me the power to, in fact, live the way that the Lord wants me to. So when I'm living a defeated and carnal and sinful Christian life as a Christian, it's because I'm not allowing the Holy Spirit to take over, to direct me, to empower me to live for Him. Now, today, the text comes from Galatians chapter 5. And would you stand there in your seat with me, if you will, please? Standing together, Galatians chapter 5, and it's a short passage, chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. Won't we read them aloud together, everyone in unison. Galatians 5, 22. 
but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. And I'll read it again. Think with me and focus on those, those verses. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering or patience, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, which means self-control. Those are the fruit of the Spirit. Thank you, and you may be seated. Now, my title to you today is How to Recognize a Spirit-Filled Christian. How do you recognize a Spirit-Filled Christian? You can't recognize that I'm a Spirit-Filled Christian just because I say, hey, everybody, I'm a Spirit-Filled Christian. In fact, if I am a Spirit-Filled Christian, I don't need to announce it. I think you're going to know it. And I think the passage bears that out. Being a spirit-filled Christian is not having had some uh, tremendous emotional experience. That's what most people in our part of the country especially believe. It is not an experience. It is a way of life that I'm speaking to you about this morning. And you know, it's a wonderful day. I want you to get this. I'm going to read this from my notes because I want to say it exactly. It's so important. It is a wonderful day when I learn that my acceptance before God is not based on my performance. My acceptance before God is not based on what I do or what I don't do. My acceptance by God is based upon what Christ earned for me on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he made me accepted in God. And so if I trip and fall today and if I do something that is displeasing to him, he doesn't cast me out. I haven't lost my salvation. He accepts me in the beloved is what the book of Ephesians says. Salvation by grace through faith, that I do not deserve salvation. I didn't deserve it when I was saved, and I don't deserve it now. I will never come to a point where I am deserving of God's grace. Grace, in fact, by definition means unmerited, doesn't it? Undeserving. And so when I say that I'm saved by grace, what I mean by that, of course, is that I didn't deserve it at all, but Jesus loved me, went to the cross, paid for every sin, and then offers me salvation by grace through faith, undeserving, unmerited, but I get it anyhow. Isn't that wonderful today? That's the basis of my acceptance with the Lord, not what I do or don't do. In fact, Galatians addresses that throughout. Flip back a page or so to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 11. And this is a verse that I love. But that no man is justified by the law, by keeping the law. No man is justified by the law in the sight of God. It is evident, obvious. For 
And that great discovery that Martin Luther wrote about, the just shall live by faith. Amen? Not faith plus works, but by faith, period. If you can get that, that's the most freeing and joyful and wonderful thing that you will ever discover in your entire life. And then look two verses down in verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. And so Jesus Christ, hanging on the cross, bore my sin and yours upon his back and paid our penalty, and we are saved by grace through faith. Amen. Now, I, I say that almost every Sunday. And you know why I say it? Because people have a hard time comprehending that. Everybody has this performance-based idea. I've got to live good to please the Lord and lots of luck. Now, some live better than others, but nobody lives good enough that they can please the Lord. It is by grace through faith. Say amen if you believe that today. All right. I was wondering if you had an amen in you today. Now, having said that, though, I'm saved by grace. Does that affect my behavior? Have I just given you permission to go out and live any way you want to live and just, just uh, violate every law of morality and righteousness and godliness? Absolutely not. And people who say that bother me because I don't think you understand what salvation is. I don't think you understand grace when you make that kind of comment. You Baptist, you believe in that once saved, always saved stuff. All you're doing is giving people permission to go and sin. Well, you just haven't listened to me preach much. Because people tell you, I don't preach that. No, no, no. My behavior will demonstrate whether I have the Lord in my life and if I'm filled by His Spirit. In fact, it's recognizable. It's recognizable. It's absolutely evident if a person is a Spirit-filled Christian. Matthew chapter 7, verse 20, the Lord Jesus Christ said, by their fruits you shall know them. In other words, by the behaviors in a person's life, by their lifestyle, you will know what their values are. You will know what they really believe. It's not what we say with our lips. It's what we actually produce in our life that is the re reality of what we believe. So we come to this. Notice with me in verse 22 of Galatians 5. Underline that little phrase in your Bible, the fruit of the Spirit. Well, that tells me one thing immediately. God wants fruit and not nuts. Amen? God wants fruit, not nuts. The Christian community always has their share of nuts. And I just needed to say that for the sake of uh, everybody here. God's not interested in the nuts. He's interested in the fruit that we produce in our life. Notice the word fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit. What is fruit? Fruit is something that naturally occurs. You can't buy a box of manufactured fruit. Fruit is produced by a tree or a bush. Fruit is something that naturally occurs, that only God can make fruit. Be it a peach, an apple, an orange, a pineapple, or a banana, whatever. 
All of those are divinely made. They grow upon something that has life in it, a bush, a tree, or a plant of some sort. So fruit, the fruit of the Spirit is something that is produced in my life by the life of God in my heart. Understand that. Just like the peach is produced on a tree as a result of the life within the peach tree, the fruit of the Spirit is produced in my life by the living reality of Jesus Christ in my heart and in my life. You've got to have the life of God to have the fruit produced in your life. Notice with me something else about that word in chapter 5 and verse 22. It's singular. People read it, the fruits of the Spirit. That's, that's not what it says. It's the fruit, singular, of the Spirit. The old Chinese preacher said, well, it's one fruit and nine flavors. He probably had it right, didn't he? And D.L. Moody says the fruit of the Spirit really is one thing. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And he said all the other qualities, the other eight qualities following love there are the results of having love in our heart. For example, peace is resting in God's love in our life. And so all eight of the others are related to love. There's really one fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, and then those eight qualities that flow out of love, if you will. Love is the fountain, and the other eight qualities flow out of the fountain of love in our life. So notice with me one other thing about this. Those nine qualities or nine traits, if you will, are all character qualities. So this morning, when I talk about the fruit of the Spirit, I'm not talking about what you do or what you don't do. I'm talking about what you are. The fruit of the Spirit deals with our character. It doesn't deal with our conduct. I'm not talking about what you do, the actions of your life, and the nine qualities listed there called the fruit of the Spirit, a cluster of fruit, if you will. They are the very nature of Christ. If you wanted to describe Jesus Christ to somebody, some Martian flew into the earth and you met him out here and he said, now who is this Jesus fellow? How could you better describe Jesus than saying, you know, he was God who came to this planet and was born and lived here, and he, his character was he was love and joy and peace and long-suffering and goodness. And you could go right on and give all the qualities because if I have the fruit of the Spirit in my life, I am like Jesus Christ in my character and uh, in, my, in my inner being. So they describe what we are, not our conduct, what we do. And I believe that living a Spirit-filled life produces the fruit of the Spirit, and I believe it's observable. I believe it is rec a recognizable reality. When I'm around people, and I begin to think along this line, I can recognize the fruit of the Spirit in their life. It's a recognizable quality, this matter of the Spirit of God ruling in their life. 
I'll give you a couple of examples real quickly. There was a man in the New Testament, the early church, whose name was Barnabas. And Barnabas was one of Paul's helpers, one of his assistants, if you will. And in the book of Acts, chapter number 11, someone describes Barnabas. And here's what they said about Barnabas. He is a good man, and he's full of the Holy Ghost and faith. He is a good man who is full of the Holy Ghost. Now, how can you tell if a person is full of the Holy Ghost? How could you tell if a person is spirit-filled? By what they say? No. By what they do? In some degree, but mostly by what they are. And if you look at someone and you see love, joy, peace, goodness, gentleness, all those things, then you say, that person is filled with the Holy Spirit. It's observable. It's recognizable. In Acts chapter 6, they decide they need to take uh, to set aside some, some people, seven people precisely, that are going to become the helpers. Some say they were deacons, the first deacons in that church. And they're going to help the apostles who are becoming uh, overwhelmed by the ministry load of that day. And so what do they look for when they elect these deacons or whatever position they may have been? They said, look out among you seven men filled with the Holy Ghost and wisdom that we can appoint over this business. It was recognizable. In other words, it's something that can be seen. Now, that's what I want you to get a hold of because I think that we tend to think of this as being ethereal and spiritual and mystical and and we can't get a hold of it and it's not very practical. And I tell you, such is not the case. If you and I live a spirit-filled life, there will be recognition that there's a power within us that's working and it gives us these qualities listed here and called the fruit of the Spirit. I want you to look back to verse number 22 and I'll talk about this, uh, uh, pardon me, verse 19. I'll talk about this more tonight. Now, the works of the flesh are. So we have two contrasting lifestyles, two contrasting ways that a person can live. By the way, even a Christian. Don't don't say, oh, this is the saved and the unsaved. No, Christians can live after the flesh. And so we have the works of the flesh, verse 19, And we have the fruit of the Spirit in verse 22. So we have these two contrasting manners of life, these two contrasting lifestyles. I'm either living after the works of the flesh or I'm living after the fruit of the Spirit or some combination thereof, part of my life controlled by the flesh and part of my life controlled by the Spirit. And I know people like that as well, and sometimes I've been there myself, I know. Now, let's analyze the fruit, this cluster of fruit that we call the fruit of the Spirit here for a few moments. I hope you'll take some notes if you have something there because I really want you to get this. This is impactful on the way you're going to live your life as a Christian. If you're a serious Christian, a serious Christian, this is very, very, very important to you. All right, the first one is love, and that's agape love. What is agape love? Agape love is not romantic love. The love, agape love here, the love that comes from the Holy Spirit is not a feeling. 
It's not based on you're very attractive to me, so I'm, I want to be around you. I love you, but I don't love the people who are not so attractive to me. It's not the kind of love this is. There are three different kinds of love mentioned in the Bible. I won't define them today, but one of them is agape. And agape love is the highest form of love. Agape love is characterized by one thing, self-sacrifice. It's characterized by giving. It's not emotional. It doesn't get all caught up and say, oh, I'm just, I'm just brokenhearted. Somebody has this need. It's not the idea of agape. Agape says this person has a need, and I will do something about it. Agape love always is characterized by action, not by emotion and feeling. And agape love always, always, always serves other people. In fact, I like the definition that we use in our RU program because if you think about it, every person who is dealing with addiction, addiction is basically a very self-focused way of life. Addictions cause people to be absolutely self-focused. They're looking out entirely for themselves. Why would a drug addict steal from their mother and daddy's uh, valuables in a home? Because they only are thinking about themselves. And so agape love is something we emphasize in our, our you ministry. And we define it like this, the willing sacrificial giving of oneself for the benefit of someone else with no thought of return. The willing, sacrificial giving of myself for the needs and the benefits of someone else with no thought that they can ever repay me. Now, you want to know the greatest example of that? It's the cross of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ came to the earth, and he sacrificed himself with no thought of ever receiving anything back from you and me. And he did it in a manner that he saw our need and rescued us. Oh, that's what Christmas is about. That's why it's such a glorious and wonderful time. Agape love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 13 says, now there's hope and there's faith But the greatest of these is, you know it, don't you? The greatest of these is love. That agape love is the greatest single quality that you or I can have as a Christian. I can be off base on a lot of other things. But the Bible says if I have love, listen to what it says. Love covers a multitude of other sins. I can have other faults. I can have other weaknesses. I can have other things in my life that are not all they ought to be before the Lord. But if I have agape love in my life, the Bible says it covers even a multitude of other things. Love is the first and the main and the primary fruit of the Spirit. Then there's joy, the second word. Joy is a sense of well-being that's experienced when I know that all is well between the Lord and me, when I, when I know in my conscience and in my spirit that all is well, that the Lord is pleased with me, then I have joy in my heart. Joy is not happiness. 
Our world today is focused on happiness. The Bible makes a big, big, big distinction. Joy is not happiness. Study the word happiness. It's an interesting word. I looked it up in the dictionary this week. It comes from an old English term, hap, hap, H-A-P, which means what is happening. Happiness depends upon what's happening. Happiness depends upon my circumstances. Happiness depends upon the situation around me, what's going on in my life. I'm happy if things are going well, and I'm not happy when things are going badly. But joy, you see, has the ability to rise above what is happening around me. And joy doesn't depend on what's happening. Joy depends on my relationship with the Lord Jesus. And you know what? Lots of Christians are spending their life trying to be happy, and they might not ever really achieve that goal. But I can tell you today, there's joy in serving Jesus, as the old hymn says. There's this inner sense of well-being that the Lord approves. It's not that he takes away the pain. Joy doesn't take away the pain. Joy helps me bear the pains of life. Joy helps me to go on and serve the Lord even when the circumstances are absolutely horrible. And then there's peace, the third one, shalom, the Jews call it, the tranquility of mind that comes regardless of what is happening around me. The Bible talks about peace with God. It's based on the idea that God has nothing against me. There's no sins on my record. I'm at peace with God because of the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sins. And then there's the peace of God, which is different than the peace with God. Peace of God is that deep, settled conviction that things are going to be okay. Peace of God. Things are okay. I used to listen to a Southern gospel song by the Statesman Quartet. I remember them singing it. It was a catchy little tune. And it, did, it said, people are trying to, look, you know, make everything all right. And the title of the song was, Everything's Already All Right. Don't you like that? Everything's already all right. Because you can look for this state, this idyllic, romantic idea that things are going to be perfect one day. Hey, listen, I've lived a long time. It ain't going to happen. I've been waiting on this church to be perfect. The day that it is, I'm leaving. Because if I stay another day or two, I might mess it up, you know? And for 48 years, it's not had one day of perfection. And if you're living your life looking for perfection, you're going to be disappointed, ladies and gentlemen. But you can have peace. You can have peace even when everything is not right. That deep, settled conviction that everything's already all right because the Lord is in control. And then... You notice people with those qualities, love, joy, peace, I call that, you can tell it by their countenance. It shows on their face, doesn't it? It doesn't mean they're a smiley face all the time. It doesn't mean they go around goofy acting. But it means that they have the love of the Lord, the joy of the Lord, and they have peace with God and the peace of God in their hearts. But you can tell it, secondly, by their conduct. You can tell it by their conduct. The next three are deal with conduct. There's long-suffering, which is just an old word for patience, another word for patience. Long-suffering means the ability to forbear, 
Here's what long-suffering really means. I love this definition. The ability to endure irritating circumstances. <laughs> Boy, I need that one, don't you? Can you remember that tomorrow when the irritations come along? Long-suffering, the fruit of the Spirit, the ability to endure irritating situations or circumstances. Phillips Brooks was one of the most famous preachers of his era back in the 1880s and 90s. He preached in Boston, very famous name across America, the most famous preacher of his day probably. And a friend went into Phillips Brooks' study in Boston one day, and Phillips Brooks was walking back and forth, and he was just, you know, he was just frantic, you could tell. He was just stressed out, full of tension. And the friend said to him, Pastor, he said, um, what is going on with you? What's wrong? And Phillips Brooks said, I'll tell you what's wrong. I'm in a hurry, and God is not. I'm in a hurry, and God is not. What he was saying was, I need a shot of that long-suffering. I need some of that patience. Anybody here in a situation where you're in a hurry and God is not? Things just haven't quite fallen into place? Well, the fruit of the Spirit is God's antidote to that. And then it's followed by gentleness. Look in your text. Gentleness. If you want to make that real simple, modern-day English, just write kindness out beside it. The gentleness of that passage is kindness. I guess if there's one thing that I think of when I talk to someone and they demonstrate kindness, especially in a situation where they don't have to be kind, I think of them as being a, a righteous person. I think of that as a, a godly person, that they can be kind to me, gentle. And the third one is goodness. Goodness simply means moral excellence, moral excellence. It has the idea of being virtuous, living a virtuous life. Well, that's a word that's about going out of our vocabulary. Parents, teach your children virtue. That's a word, there's not hardly another word that will fill the void for that word when we take it out, that we are to be virtuous people. The Bible talks about those virtues. A person who is good, goodness in their character, opposes evil. They oppose all evil in all forms. It disturbs me when I see people who call themselves Christians and they can be passive about what is absolutely condemned in Scripture. And they kind of shrug their shoulders. Well, you know, that's the way people are. But never are we, if we're filled with the Spirit of God, never are we going to be able to settle in and say, well, that's just okay. Everybody does it. No, no. Goodness opposes everything that is evil. So we can recognize the fruit of the Spirit in a person by their countenance. It shows on their face. Love, joy, peace. We can recognize a person who is Spirit-filled by their conduct, long-suffering, gentleness, and goodness. And thirdly, we can recognize them by their character, by their character. And what is their character? Well, faith. Faith in this use right here has the idea of 
I'm very loyal to what I believe. I'm very faithful to what I believe. I not only say I believe things, but I, I have a commitment to those things. I am a person of faith, faithfulness, if you will. And then there's the second character quality here, or uh, yes, character quality, and that's meekness. Look at meekness in your Bible there. What a wonderful word, so out of date today. Maybe the nearest thing we think of when we think of meekness is humble, humility. But, it's, but actually, meekness goes beyond humility. Humility is not a good substitute or a full substitute for meekness. Meekness is the willingness to associate with people who are poor. Are you embarrassed when somebody sits down beside you and their clothes are old and they're poor and it's obvious? Do you have some relatives that are going to come see you at Christmas and you're kind of, everybody looks like that? A meek person doesn't think that way. A meek person is humble and a meek person never thinks in terms of someone else. Uh, they don't think of them as, I'm not willing to associate with someone. I admire people who, regardless of who we're around, we are the same because we're spirit-empowered, we're spirit-filled. Meekness is not weakness. We think today of humility. I read an article not, recent, uh, uh, not long ago, and, and the article said that humility is not even a value among many Americans today. We have emphasized this self-esteem stuff so long that if somebody's humble, we think they're weak. What a perversion of, of, of truth. What a perversion of the Christian faith. Jesus Christ was meek. He said, I am lowly and I'm meek. Jesus Christ was humble. He humbled himself and came to a manger, if you can imagine. And in America, we are so upside down in our thinking and in our values. And we Christians have bought into some of that stuff so deeply that we, we don't even aspire to meekness. Meekness is not weakness. Do you know there's a man in the Bible who the Scripture says was the meekest man who lived? You know what his name was? Moses. The meekest man who ever lived. And he was the leader of two and a half million Israelites for 40 years walking across the desert. You think that's weakness? I doubt there's a leader anywhere in the world today that could, could equal Moses' leadership ability, and yet he's meek. He's not afraid. He's not too proud to associate himself with any class of people, any kind of people. He doesn't look down on people. Another definition of meekness is strength under control. Strength under control. And the illustration that I love so much is back in the days, the wild horses out west. In fact, we still have them. And that cowboy would catch a wild horse, and he'd put him in a corral. He'd leave him in there for a week or two and feed him, and then finally the horse would get to where he'd allow him to pet him. And then one day he'd finally slip the reins on the horse, the bit in his mouth, 
And after another week or so of him getting acclimated to that, he put the saddle on him. Gradually, 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 over a period of weeks, maybe even months, he would introduce to him the, 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 the bit and the saddle and the blanket and all that. And then one day, that cowboy would jump up on the back of that horse. That horse would buck and try to throw him off. That cowboy would try to stick there. He might even throw him off a time or two. But ultimately, the horse would submit. And the horse would say, there's no use me throwing him off. He'll just get back up there. And the horse is broken. And now, what was once a wild horse running across the prairie with his mane flying in the wind and of no value to anybody, now... He's a beautiful stallion with a saddle on him, meeked. They use that term. We meeked that stallion. We meeked him. We humbled him. We brought him to where his strength is under control. We've got now a useful, wonderful animal, very, very valuable, worth thousands of dollars perhaps where before he was worth nothing. Strength that is under control. And in the spirit world, here I am, that wild creature driven by my sinful nature and by my flesh. And Jesus Christ comes and the Holy Spirit begins to fill me. And he meeks me if I surrender to him. Don't be a wild Mustang bucking at the will of God after you've been saved for 10 years, for heaven's sakes. Go and submit to him. Strength under control. And then you will have value you never had. And the last one is temperance. Temperance. Self-control. The ability to restrain inappropriate passions and appetites. The ability not to throw a hymn book when people sleep while you're preaching. The people to restrain your passions and to act appropriately, self-control, self-discipline. Now, real quick, let me tell you a couple things. All my life, I've read that list. And for much of my life, here's what I said. Oh, my, will I ever be filled with the Spirit and have the fruit of the Spirit in my life? I need to be more loving. Okay, I'm going to set a goal. I've got to be more loving. I've got to be more patient. Oh, hurry up, Lord, and give me patience. I've got to have more self-control. I've got to, I've got to find peace in the middle of troubling circumstances. It was like I had nine goals that the Lord had assigned me. I've got to try to develop those. Now, stop, look, listen to me for just a moment. These are not goals to pursue because you and I cannot produce fruit. Think about that. The Holy Spirit is the producer of the fruit. I'm the fruit bearer. The Holy Spirit is the life within the tree. I'm the tree. I can't make myself be more loving. Can you? Oh, I can for a few minutes, and then somebody irritates me and 
I can't make myself be more patient. I can't make myself have more joy. Now, I've got to have joy, 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 joy. Now, I can't do that. It's got to be produced for me and in me. And the only way that is produced is yielding to the Holy Spirit in my life and being filled with the Spirit. This doesn't mean I'm to be passive, but it means I am to actively pursue the filling of the Holy Spirit if I want to have the fruit of the Spirit. Number two, I remind you again, being filled with the Spirit is not a subjective experience. It's something that can be seen. Something that can be seen. And how is it seen? It's seen in those nine character qualities and traits that the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit. Listen to me carefully. Here's the wrap-up, and this is the most important thing now that you understand it. When the Spirit fills an individual, you, if the Spirit fills you, you will find joy, gratitude, humility, you'll have a big concern for other people because he gives the Holy Spirit for us to be able to witness for him primarily. And when I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, you know what you will not find in me? Complaining, griping, criticizing, all those negative qualities that we don't like in everybody else but that we can easily fall into and practice ourselves. This is hard for me to practice, to preach. Man, I live with a woman who's sitting right out there looking at me right now. I, I, I got a child sitting up here behind me. I got people that have worked with me for years. They know my life. They know it inside out. But the reality is when I'm filled with the Spirit, it's characterized by these nine traits. And when I'm griping and complaining and criticizing and running things and people down. I'm not filled with the Spirit. I'm filled with self. How do you become filled with the Spirit again? As I told you last week, you thirst. Jesus said, if any man thirst, I'll give him the Holy Spirit, and out of his belly will flow rivers of water. First of all, you got to really want this. Number two, I must surrender my life. If I want to be filled with the Spirit, I surrender myself I obey everything that the Bible tells me to do as much as I know it. It's not whether or not I have the Holy Spirit, ladies and gentlemen. It's does he have me? That's really the issue. And then I pray, Luke 11 and 13. If a father, being evil, knows how to give good gifts to his children, how much more does the Will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Isn't that wonderful? That's a promise of God. And then I maintain that feeling by every day confessing my sins and staying right and close with the Lord Jesus Christ. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.